kind of uh, on the Adriatic near Ancona. Sounds nice. terrible. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds appalling. I told her it's the Coventry of, of Italy, which is where I'm from. <laughs> Quite. Are you from Coventry? I didn't yeah. realise that originally. Yeah, yeah. Not as nice on the seaside there, but unfortunately. No, no. Struggle a bit not. on that front. I bet not. Um, I'm looking forward to this. Because you and I don't agree on much sometimes. Mm, yeah. Well... See what you, so see what you come up with. So in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex, you're going to be very busy this week with charts. This is an absolute chart fest. Right. We have a bunch to cover, so uh, so let's get into it. Um, Anthony Webb, not only investment manager, but also manages our managed portfolio service internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the most bearish man in the world uh, at the time. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Raymond, as Second usual. most bearish man in the world. <laughs> Yeah, I'll do my best to bring, to bring the positivity <laughs> and the optimism this week. Um, shall we get stuck in, fellas? There's lots yeah, to get through it. this yeah, week. Right. Um, housing. So what we're looking at here, obviously, is UK mortgage rates, which, well, downward trajectory since 1995 have absolutely exploded higher. Uh, probably not necessarily all that good news for the housing market. I don't know what you two have seen anecdotally with housing, but I mean, certainly around where I live in Earlsfield, prices don't seem to be taking a hit yet. No. It's just there's no mm. transactions. No transactions. Exactly. Phony, yeah. war, phony war before reality hits, I think. Well, I mean, if you are trying to buy the median house in the UK, is what, £300,000? And you're going to get a mortgage of £200,000, and you're now paying 2% a year more in interest, that's £4,000 a year, which mm. is £350 a month. It's not immaterial for someone on the median wage of about thirty thousand a year. Yeah, after tax, pulling that, pulling that out of a hat is is not an easy thing for most people. And then obviously regional discrepancies are significant. Yeah, there's going to be a bigger impact in in London. But yeah. a lot of what I'm hearing is about mortgage terms extending. You know, instead of twenty five years, thirty, thirty five, in forty available, and it just makes it's just an affordability thing. It's just I still want the house. Kind of, you know. Do I, do I pay that extra three fifty, or can, where can I extend the loan to yeah. to bring it down? down? What, what was it like? And because it was seven away, what did housing go down? Best part of twenty percent. Yeah, and yeah. Presu- we're in this weird situation. It feels like at the minute where there's no trades being made, so you're not seeing that rollover, and transactions only happen when people lose their jobs. Yeah. sadly, it and took a long time. Sellers. It took a long time for house prices to grind lower. It didn't just happen overnight. Not like the stock market. No, or PTSD. Well, um, I suppose that's in terms of pricing. You know, we talk about in the markets when liquidity is thin, you can get big fluctuations in yeah. in prices, and in the housing market, maybe different. But you might see, you know, opportunities where someone might be able to buy a house cheaply because someone's got to get rid of something. But in general, house prices might be stable because no one wants to sell. But there might be quite a lot of dislocation within that if someone, you know, if you need a buyer overnight. Yeah. Then you're going to have a problem. I mean, we haven't got the charts in the pack, but house builders have actually done okay recently, right? Recent. But there was, well, very recently, very recently, but then before that, we're beaten up quite badly. Yeah, but that's not necessarily because house prices are about to crash 30%. A lot of that is because margins are coming down because their costs are going up, pricing is soft, but also volumes are down and it's a volume game. Mm-hmm. So if you're persimmon and you do 10,000 houses a year, and this year you're going to sell 7,000 houses a year, that yeah. hurts. Big time. Who, so it's, it's who, like a volume problem. Who suffers with volume when volume is low in the housing market? House builders, 
State agents. Brickies. Estate agents, Brickies. Yeah, for sure. Brickies, solicitors. Furniture, furniture shops. I mean, the tax man buys a sofa. sofa. The tax man. The tax man. The stamp duty. I mean, it's difficult for me to say. So there's a couple more charts here. Let's just zip through them while we've got them. So these are mortgage rates. Obviously, we've exploded up recently. Uh, the chart on the left-hand side. Um, home ownership by mortgage status. Nominal house price levels that's rolled over here. So mortgage status. Um, own outright. Actually, more people in the UK there mm. own their house outright this than with a mortgage. Very surprising. Mm. Only like, 30% of UK houses have got a mortgage on them, which is actually quite low. I mean, I, I that surprised me the first time I saw mm. and Ollie mentioned it. It demonstrates how unaffordable a lot of UK housing is. You know, A lot of the frustration of younger generations not being able to get on the property ladder yeah. is a lot of the property is, is held, locked up, bought Sweden, a long time ago. Sweden's an interesting case because Sweden's a bit like the UK was 30 years ago. All of their mortgages are on short variable rates yeah, and their, their house prices are already down 20% from their highs right. in, that, in absolutely no time at all. Well there we go. Um, oh, there. Sorry. UK mortgage sensitivity uh, for the UK is very high relative to other nations as you said. Um, yeah, 100% more. of it in five years or more or less. That's the, the remarkable thing without there being so any. nobody's on more than no a five 10, yeah, yeah, no 10, 15, 30 as you see, you know, 15 and 30 are the standard ones in the US. So the average is 23 years. Yeah. Um, as, as someone in the 23 cohort here, sadly, uh, with refi <laughs> during the next 12 months, um, yeah, it doesn't feel like a great outcome. But I mean, listen, just going back to that previous chart there, we're looking at nominal house prices specifically. The UK obviously hasn't seemed to be marked down at all. We've seen a bit of a, a rollover in the likes of Germany, but it's difficult for me to envisage a scenario where housing in this country goes down 20-30%. Other than the bleeding obvious, which is rates have gone up by a lot very, very quickly, it's still the number one objective of young people in this country to own their own home. That is different to Europe, and mm-hmm. um, we have a supply issue. Yeah, big supply issue. It all depends on who's selling on the margin, doesn't it? I think that most of these charts are showing people that want to buy their own home, home ownership percentage of households, and obviously they, the left-hand chart doesn't go up to a hundred because you've got buy-to-let investors and um, you know other households that aren't actually owned by the occupier, so rentals and so on. So you know, are they going to be the marginal sellers buy-to-let, where you know you're yield that you're now paying on the interest only mortgage to, to pay for it has shot, shot up, you're not getting much on the on the rental yield. You might get a glut of, of supply coming to market from people that ultimately aren't investors but have been building up decent sized property investment pools and don't want to play that game anymore, the tax yeah. incentives aren't there. Mm. Um, that could be could you know be, something on the margin that, that makes the difference. And, Do you and, see and clients doing that? Yeah, I was just about to say, we all, I mean lots of clients have who are of an age and they get to the point in life where you know on a Saturday someone tenant phones up because the boiler's broken I mean they don't, yeah. they don't need that in retirement and the numbers and the yields are not there the, the income yields are not there they've already made a load of money on it so that well I can get three four percent in the bank now for doing nothing at all and the le- legislation coming through on yeah, kind of bringing up the um, energy efficiency yeah. 100% yeah so no, the, I think the, the only thing costly. stopping it is CGT at the moment so obviously CGT is 28% on property for high road taxpayers 18 for basic road taxpayers I'm not a tax advisor just for a disclaimer um, <laughs> you know if, 
if if that rate were to come down a bit, I think you'd probably see the sort of metaphorical floodgates. Well, that's, that's well, what about if yeah. the threat of it is going up to income or threat of it rates, is going up, and then you yeah, get a blip of it anyway? So that's possible. But as there's well. all, there's two ways of looking at it because I would have assumed you know maybe we've got a change of government coming in the next couple of years. They'd probably go that way, i.e., raise rates on capital assets. You know. It either locks in or people start to try and get rid, don't they? But if you're looking at it the other way, you've got a supply issue. Actually, the thing to do is reduce the rates so that a lot of buy and let landlords. I mean, I've seen clients, you've seen clients, John Bunson, things who are selling buy and let assets because the tax environment is less friendly. Actually, if you have an amnesty for two or three years, lower rates get the supply onto the market. Maybe that that helps, you know, younger, well, younger voters ultimately. Mm. Probably a vote winner, but not great for the revenue. No. Well, is it though? So, I mean, I remember when CGT, I'm a really old man, CGT used to be 40% until the late noughties, 2006-07, when they changed it. Well, they so, cut yeah. it to 24% and then they abolished indexation and taper relief. So they simplified it and they reduced the rate. That actually led to a lot of clients in, in those times who had portfolios that were kind of gummed up with CGT, for the sake of argument, actually were quite keen to pay a bit of tax to get rid of some of those things now because mm-hmm. they felt the rate was lower. So uh, and I'm not saying that reducing CGT rates increases revenue on CGT, but you know there is more of an argument with capital taxes because they're optional. It's a voluntary tax. Pulling that voluntary. Laffer curve. Pull, pulling in that Laffer curve <laughs> for capital gains. I think it works, and that's why I'm slightly sceptical as to why Labour will just willy-nilly raise CGT rates because I think as soon as someone in the Treasury sits down and does a sense check and a sort of piece of research on this they go actually if we raise CGT we're not going to raise any more money this is, it's a, yeah. a very nominal amount if any money that you raise because people just don't sell assets which is the worst of all worlds because then assets are ultimately held by people who wouldn't otherwise hold, hold them and from a sort of pure economic point of view that's inefficient from an economic perspective from an optimization optimization yeah. point yeah so we'll see. But I think buy to let, I think you're absolutely right, buy to let is the potential kind of shoe that could drop and could be the marginal seller that gets supply through gets and gets prices transactions down. and gets prices down. Another reason I just don't think, I, I find it really difficult to envisage a scenario where you get that proper drop in house prices mm. is the solution to almost every single question from the Bank of England seems to be to try and prop up the property market. Now, they might be very good reasons behind that. You know, I remember Mark Carney being particularly vocal a few years ago about the wealth effect of property, whether that is an actual, action, actual tangible thing in the UK. Most of our, the average bear's assets, uh, there's a higher proportion of property than there would be in other countries, so maybe there is more of a wealth effect, but we went into COVID with basically zero rates and we decided a snap duty cut was the right thing to do. Bonkers, isn't it? In hindsight. Hindsight's twenty twenty, yeah. but you've got a, a pretty not quite a roaring fire, but it's it's chugging along quite nicely, and you buck a load of petrol on it. Well, this this is the problem that you know the inflation cat wasn't out of the bag at that point, and so they might want to prop up the housing market. They might they might they might want to do a load of things to prop up the banking sector and to you know bring back financial stability. Whatever the issue might might become, if you've got runaway inflation, then it's. You know, it's a difficult choice for them to make, and yeah. they might be forced to. What typically tends to happen is that inflation gets put on the on the back burner as you deal with the more immediate issues, and then inflation expectations become run away. 
and then it becomes such a big issue that you have to effectively slam the brakes on from a kind of monetary policy perspective by sure inflation's yesterday's story Anthony inflation's dead exactly this is the problem I think this is what was going to happen throughout the course of the the next year or so is that we're going to go through months where we expect inflation to be coming down and it and it seems okay and then we'll we'll, you know you see Positive print and it'll That's something you back mentioned up. to me wasn't during the seventies, eighties. It, it yeah, oscillated the, the, the a lot. Uh, the, the inflation peaked in seventy nine, eighty, and then the, the ensuing three, four years as it was coming down, the month on month things were really volatile. And you had these big kind of mm. plus six percent on a month, plus one, plus five. You know, you know, it does doesn't come down in a straight line. And, and the net impact of all of that is on the the only cons- constant is <clears throat> on employee behaviour. So when you're thinking, you know, year on year, how do I survive through this economic backdrop? You negotiate for higher wages. And that's, you know, that's the only thing you can count on. You say, well, if I get a pay rise, then I'll be okay, irrespective of if inflation happens to be flat this year or or is higher. So then you get that kind of wage price spiral and this kind of embedding of expectations. And I think that's the risk at the moment, as we're seeing, you know, service inflation isn't yet coming down no. to the rate that goods are. No, I think ultimately they were never said out loud, but ba- central banks want job losses. Yeah, absolutely. It's the only way to guarantee some. You know, if you're if you're faced with that decision as a individual employee, do I a go to my boss and say I want a five or ten percent pay rise? B go to another company and move over there or see actually just hunker down and and wait it out because I'm not too confident about the wider Mm, economy Mm. you need that third condition Mm. in order to stop people Mm. doing one of you know either A or B so um, that's the that's ultimately one one of the requirements of, of that monetary policy as negative as it sounds and you get US senators like Elizabeth Warren saying this policy is intended to create unemployment. It's like, yes, it is, unfortunately. It will, it, yeah, you can never say it out loud, but that's exactly, yeah. I mean, you know, central banks only have a finite amount of tools in their kit and getting the unemployment figure from three and it does not get any lower up towards a four or five handle is is one of the few ways that they've got to combat inflation, mm. especially when it's services inflation, not goods inflation. And goods inflation is... Unemployment has never gone up by one or two percentage points without there not being a recession. So it's sort of, and I think even in some of the Fed's projections, and I know we've we've moved the conversation on quite neatly already, but you know you just can't loosen the labour market immaculately without there being consequences on growth. Mm -hmm. And that's that sort of makes sense because if companies start laying off five or ten percent of staff as we've already seen in the US tech sector but if that's more general yeah. you know if you're part of the 90 percent that hasn't been laid off you're like oh phew that was close uh oof, I better tighten my belt here because it might be me next time you know yeah. and I might not put that expensive holiday and I might not go to expensive exactly. restaurants every week we might make so like it's not just the job losses impact it's, it's the on. it's the psychological impact on those who don't get made redundant going oh crikey I need to yeah. you know What's savings rates magically in, go up in the meantime you're getting some central bankers commenting saying, well, you know, it's irresponsible for individuals to be paying higher prices or to be, you know, negotiating for wage rises if they're contributing to the inflation themselves. Yeah, and you, it's, it's, it's insane. That, yeah, yeah, that, it just um, beggars belief. I think the other thing as well that's been talked about a, a fair amount is whether the kind of 
expected rate, you know, we, we, we move up to three or four percent as a kind of a the rolling rate of inflation. And I, again, I think that's um, just a bit of wishful, wishful thinking, given that, you know, not every price of every individual good goes up by two percent a year and that you bring everything down the same amount. You know, it's a, a basket and it's weighted and as an average. Some things will be falling, some things will be flat, some things will be going up by four or five percent. And if you're aiming for that average of say four percent now, as a result of you know where we are in the economy, you're gonna have a, a wider range of, mm. of, of you know of, of spreads that within that. Yeah, yeah. And that again means that you know the ability, especially when you think of what types of goods um, are you know you, you, you are not effectively discretionary. You know, those are the things that will not kind of be at the lower end of that inflationary range. So the things that take up a bigger part of a lower income yeah. person spend be your consume you know your, your staples your you know your, your food and energy yeah, and yeah, you know, your, yeah. and goods and so on. Those things you have to pay, pay for them. You have to buy them. So the inflation will pass on there. And again, the workers that buy those goods will then therefore you know target that same wage rise to offset the cost that they're paying. So take it back a second, I, you know, I just don't think that the idea that we could change central bank policy to target 4% or 35 whatever is a legitimate long-term one that, that would play through. No. No, they over-tighten, they over-listen, it's never going to be in perfect equilibrium, really. Um, I think one of the challenges this I think you mentioned we've mentioned layoffs a bunch of times you know if we're looking at earnings which is now where the focus is focus is we're now just entering into a new earnings season um, this is where valuations sit at the moment so in and around kind of average levels going back to 1990 I should say these charts are, are from JP Morgan's guide to the markets and um, yeah well worth a look if, if you're a bit yeah. fiend like we are um so in the round average, I think that's because people can't make up their minds basically about it's what's It's interesting happening. average though, isn't it? And I also sort of look at this, you've got two massive outliers. You've got 99.com boom, 25 times P, and you've got financial crisis followed closely by the Eurozone debt crisis where you were on low double digits. You could buy equities on 10 times and, then, and you know it's amazing that the average isn't just plus or minus two, no. is it? But, but what matters here, I think, is is earnings and this left hand chart here shows you that over the long term your stock market performance tends to track earnings growth pretty tightly yeah what if you put the money supply on top of that chart as well i think oh, it would be a, away, i think it'd be nicely no, in not, line you're as taking well. my neat, these, nice neat point away these are these are these are nominal <laughs> earnings i think you're showing here aren't you yeah nominal figure anyway isn't it so well exactly so if you put the money supply on it, you see that that will line up with it quite nicely too. Money supply has collapsed, of course. Yeah, and where's that green line gone at the end there? I think, you know, that this, so earnings growth, te- uh, stock, stock market tends to track earnings growth, and earnings haven't come down yet. And this, I think, is the scary chart. Because you haven't seen his earning do- earnings downgrades the, just yet. Before, I think there was a chart in our... Um, strategy meeting earlier in the month and um, the forecast downgrades are in real estate, tech and semis and and, and energy of course and that's it really and you think and and the tech downgrades, uh, forecast downgrades are for one year Mm -hmm. so you think okay if there is this looming recession 
it's going to play through in more than what is forecast at the moment and I yeah. guess that's the kind of unnerving thing it's hard to predict it obviously and, and it doesn't um, you know until things play out it's very hard to say exactly what would do what which companies will struggle other than when you look at just a you know what does well at certain times in the, in the cycle what you know what tends to underperform which ones are cyclical and should you be buying defensives and utilities and mm. healthcare and so on I mean I think this earnings season is big particularly for tech and particularly in the current market environment when we see that most of the rally year to date has come well almost the entirety of the rally has come from the top 20 largest stocks which skew heavily towards mega cap technology you know tech Dead cap bounce no. <laughs> I mean, this bad. is coming from a pretty low low base isn't it of, from, of, of from, course but the point that I'm making is, is actually tech earnings if tech earnings hold up okay maybe this rally kind of persists my gut instinct is it won't to be honest mm. but you know, that breadth does not necessarily I think it's telling you that this is a big big quarter for tech earnings because the market's well, being I mean, 25% of the Nasdaq is Microsoft and Apple yeah. I think a lot of this rally is AI excitement and those earnings aren't going to land for quite a long time yeah, no, so it's, in, it's Microsoft and Nvidia on the AI front Apple as well as kind of in the party not for the same reasons but Good those off. three stocks um, have been phenomenal yeah. and you're not going to see those earnings materialize anytime soon so and then, and then similarly you're also not going to see a recession in those earnings because they are so you know long long dated effectively so then in a way you get some protection but I'm a little bit nervous about semis and so on although that's not the, the position of our tech analysts so you know it's uh, it's difficult it's as I said it's like if you do go into a cyclical slowdown you, you have to see those earnings actually compress before you actually can play through exactly where the what parts of the economy are struggling and it, as I say at the moment it's only really certain sectors that are being forecast to fall um, we won't really know until until you we see the watch really the know until it happens which is always mm. uh, unhelpful as well, as I mean, tech, well, tech's a big catch all those and if we're slightly careful I mean, it's 25-30% of the US market but you can basically kind of split tech in two. You've got more defensive tech, which tends to be software. Businesses are running Microsoft 365 or Sage Accounting, for a really bad example. Um, they're gonna carry on paying for that. But then there's the more cyclical stuff, which is a bit more discretionary. And in a recession, corporates tend to pull back on discretionary IT spend. Who does a massive IT rollout when your sales are falling and you've, you know, you're laying off 10% of your staff. So you know, tech itself is very kind of, um, um, indicative of what's happening in the wider market there is bits of tech that probably hold up quite well now like kind of the big bit in the middle I guess for me is cloud so cloud has been a big cloud growth has been a big driver of Amazon Microsoft and Google three of them and the growth is coming from there again is that we're in a post-covid world or a COVID post-covid world where companies corporates have to digitize they have to move away from servers in their offices and they have to move to the cloud and they have to embrace digital and that's right and that's happening but does that become, so, so it's not been discretionary for the last two, three years, mm -hmm. it's been absolutely mandatory for management teams. Does it become more discretionary as we go from, well, maybe we can leave that until next year, we don't need to do it now, let's just stick with what we've got. Yeah, it's, it's, you're not making the decision to not do something, you're making the decision to defer it. I think AWS is a case. You know, it might be a mandatory decision for a chief technology officer to move to the cloud. Mm. But if your customer base skews quite heavily towards medium and smaller sized businesses, you've got a lot of those. 
typically in a recessionary environment, those sorts of companies are probably going to try and be pulling back. They're more economically sensitive, so actually, maybe you lose out there because mm. they just can't afford to, to make the make the change. Mm. Uh, I think that the problem stands is that S and P five hundred North American equity market earnings are forecast to be down five percent this year. Well, if that we have a recession, like then it's going to be nearer twenty. Depend uh, as history suggests, if we don't have a recession and, and the mark and the, the world carries on going, then it's probably going to be a bit. So you've got skew in either direction. So it's pretty tough to call, really. Just, just as a sort of practical time out, we're quite bearish here, the three of us, right? But, you know, as an investor, what practical... I mean, what do you do with this information? So this, is, this is the crux of the point, is that you can be kind of tactically nervous about some of the risks in the economy, and you can always look at the playbook and say, okay, how do rate rises come through? Well, you see weakness in property prices as yields go up, and you might see weakness in profits as you know demand starts to weaken but and then but it's not until employment really starts to you know people make layoffs that the whole thing starts to slow down significantly but you can say okay where are we on that path we're not yet at the point where employment's coming through and so if they carry on raising rates through this cycle some things will get worse but kind of take it back to a principal basis well as I'm sure you know, you've talked about it in the past a lot about you know well-timed in investments, time in the market rather than timing the market. There's a great study that Peter Lynch did years and years ago where you know if you invest on the best day every year, you know put in a thousand dollars every year, and on the best day versus the guy who does it on the worst day, the net return of one that one person that does it on the first of January every single year versus perfect timing versus worst timing. The difference is like a spread of two percent. Yeah. So you get so eleven, like, ten and a half. But, but, but what that doesn't like show that. as well, because none of us know what the best day is going to be in any given year. What it doesn't show is the mental mm. anguish of yeah. trying to optimize your constant best case. Yeah. The thing that matters, the thing that blows everything apart, is compounding. Well, exactly in the sense that if you keep regularly doing it, then the error of one bad time or one bad, you know, picking the wrong day starts to wash out and it's not really relevant I, I guess what I'm interested in, because, you know, if I was a client sitting on the other side of the table, I'd think, Craggy, you boys sound a bit negative. And I don't think, you know, we, we actually, you know, probably just preparing ourselves as much as anything. But... How does that manifest within a portfolio? I suppose would be the question. You know, are you are you going big cash allocation or what? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, so at this point in time, for the first time in ten years, as we've discussed ad nauseum here, yeah. is that we can buy bonds and hold cash and kid ourselves a respectable return. Mm. So whereas in in previous cycles we've got to the point where we might be a bit concerned about the short term outlook of the equity market because of earnings, because valuations are not dirt cheap, then we haven't been able to own bonds or cash because it's paying us naught. Today, cash is paying us 3-4%, whatever figure we'll put on it, um, and UK government bonds for five-year duration is 3.5%. Now, okay, that's not going to get anyone rich, but inflation ought to moderate over that time horizon, so you should get paid something in terms of real return for owning a government bond today. So there's a good opportunity today to actually say, well, we can own some bonds today. Um, and I'm not saying that we, you know, we're loading up on bonds necessarily. Mm-hmm. We have been adding to bonds in the last three to six months. And then the second side of that coin is, and Anthony sort of um, touched on it, is in terms of stocks, we can buy consumer staples, utilities, national grid. Uh, in the staples, we can buy you know, Unilever, Reckitt, Nestle. In um, 
Rack healthcare, we could buy AstraZeneca. Right <laughs> you know, if you're on drugs for whatever health condition you've got, or you have got a headache, you're going to go and buy those drugs. You, you know, you're not going to put them off just because they're in a recession. So you've got the typical defensive stocks uh, sectors versus the more cyclical areas. Most cyclical of which is typically energy, because the oil price tends to get hammered in a recession, um, and as does their earnings. And then you've got mining, industrials. Consumer discretionary, so within consumer discretionary, travel and leisure, um, autos is a big part of it. Banks. Um, uh, and then you've got financials, so you've got <laughs> banks, um, because banks, funnily enough, don't do very well in a recession, because yeah. loans go bad and interest rates come down. So, you know, you've got, very simply, from an equity perspective, you've got cyclicals versus defensives, and, you know, investment managers, and within portfolios, I would say we're pretty pragmatic in, in terms of cyclicals versus defensives. Some investment managers might have a bit more of a defensive tilt. Um, others are still, you know, pretty more cyclical. You know, biased. You're you're not necessarily making massive changes to your mm. sort of starting point strategic asset allocation, but you're putting the foot in the gas or taking it off the gas a little bit depending yeah. on, on the economic environment. Yeah, and the reason though is pretty simple because we're talking about recession and earnings being too high potentially and valuations being only average. But this is like a six and twelve month view, whereas our, yeah. all of our clients have got five to ten to fifty yeah. year time horizons. Yeah. This, this is a in chart. which case. This oh, is a chart that you love to share oh, with me. I go John. through this with every client. Every client. Um, you know, this is on the left-hand side. It's starting valuation for the S&P 500 plotted by 12-month returns. As you can see, it's incredibly noisy. There's absolutely zero correlation there. 10-year um, returns, it's a different story. Over 10 years, your starting valuation tends to have a decent correlation with your end outcome. Although part of the problem here, again, is that you've got, you know, as you were saying, yeah, well, in America, four and a half percent yield and that's pretty much where that dot is on the on the forward yeah. return for yeah. for the equity oh, so yeah, yeah. that we've, starts we've, to we've pull something we've discussed before here is earnings minus tenure right mm. and actually the US does look expensive but mm. I think you know the point kind of holds point stands if you buy equities that are cheap you're gonna your tenure returns are good if you overpay your tenure returns are poor and you know the blue line is where we were at the start of 2022 and the green line is is where the S&P is today this is 31st of March data isn't it so um, it, bit more I mean, if you're talking tactics, though, you're worried about where that green line's going, and, and oh, yeah, you know, if it's sure. if, if if it's going to carry on shifting, shifting left, then we're getting that. that if it's going down, according to the if it's if we're going into a recession, according to this, it's going down. So this is where you know this is a little bit more out of date. So probably our latest P is a bit higher, if anything. But this is average trailing P and recessionary periods were a little bit lower. Um, than where where we are today, and and that doesn't include a, a decent head to earnings. As well. Yeah, and that's the confidence side of it, right? The people kind of running for the hills and um, being concerned, and, and you know, you can kind of flip all this on its head and say, you know, you've got some negative opinions around the table and in the wider market, and and that in effect is why you get better opportunities and you know higher risk premium oh, yeah, and, you know, it, yeah if, it, if it was all if we were sat here just talking about absolute positives all the time then we'd probably be in the middle of a bubble and that's probably when you would want to be more defensive you know it's kind of it, and similarly if you want to kind of position more defensively in your in your equity position or within your asset allocation you also got to think about who else out there is also taking mm. that trade and therefore is you mm. know is, is eating away at the alpha I a think bit. a lot of this is six months as you say six months 12 month bearishness I'm a firm believer 10 15 20 years that human beings are unbelievably we've got a great and it shows that solving problems yep. and that's yeah. what that's why you're an investor in equities yep. um, making the case for a little bit of short-term optimism though because I'm gonna try and bounce this out a wee bit um, 
if inflation is yesterday's story, then typically what we know historically is that falling inflation is a little bit of a tailwind for equity markets and um, specifically international markets versus the United Kingdom. Um, I think largely due to the big energy weighting that mm. MSCI UK has within it. So we've talked about, again, UK stocks versus international stocks before, but if inflation continues to fall, maybe international tends to do a little bit better. But I think the headline is that, that falling inflation is decent for risk assets. Yeah, I, th- I suppose you, the impact of the dollar and all of that as well is crucial, isn't it? And where is the inflation? So if it's emerging market inflation is one thing. If it's kind of US dollar inflation, then rates are going up. It's probably going to strengthen the dollar net on balance and that's always bad for emerging or tends to be bad for emerging markets and in Asia given that as you say like you know a lot of their commodities are priced in dollars and um, it can be from a macroeconomic perspective quite a challenge for for those regions um, picking it all apart from as I say where is the inflation being sourced from where is the, where is the problem and then what's the policy response and then taking a step back on that so much of what's going on at the moment in the markets is in response to policy so you know what we've talked about in the past is you know the unprecedented amount of, of QE that's gone on to the extent to which there'll be quantitative tightening you know we can talk about the, the natural levels of inflation but we don't know at any point in the next six months if we do go into recession whether Fed or Bank of England or whoever just turns on the tap and says go Mm. and that will be you know all bets are off in terms of um, what asset prices will do they'll they'll probably rally very very strongly so you can be as bearish as you like if 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 the if Andrew Bailey is more bearish than than me he'll turn the taps on and 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 the the stock market will will go so you know it's um it's a bit of a fool's game game theory here isn't there because you're almost you're not like there's fundamentals what should matter and ultimately if the whole thing is one giant great big rates bet that's driven by the actions of how many people sit in the MPC and how many people yeah. sit in the Fed, 20 people maybe yeah. in total, then mm. what, we, what uh, hope have we got, what, exactly. frankly? Yeah. Just buy a Just basket buy, of decent companies buy decent and goodness sake, leave them alone. Wide and but play, exactly. playing that game and playing devil's yeah. advocate, um, <laughs> this is what tends to do well when rates are going up and, and when rates are going down, the things at the bottom. Uh, tend to underperform rates are going up so you know vice versa all the names there you'd expect to see um growth us large cap um tech basically yeah and a lot of this is kind of cash flow sequence isn't it in terms of the effective maturity of of the of the cash flow generation of those particular sectors um or those investment styles you know growth is what we've talked about it being long duration is not a kind of technically accurate way of describing what it is, but you know a lot of earnings weighted long to the future and therefore more rate sensitive. Um, well, this is all we had last year, right? This is a 2022 exactly, stock yeah. market performance. You know, the UK was up last year remarkably, and the US was down, and growth was down, and value was up. So, and energy was the best performing sector last year. Um, the oil price going up 50% would help that. So yeah, this is, doesn't come as a surprise, I don't think, and I think most fund managers and investment professionals have probably got this playbook tucked away somewhere on their desk, um, and we're seeing quite a big shift into energy and into value over the last six to twelve months in yeah. terms of flows. So this isn't you know this isn't kind of 
this isn't like a eureka, ah, mm. here we go, we've got the answer kind of moment. This is already reflected in prices. So I think, I think the important thing with this is not about saying, okay, where are rates going to go and therefore should I be a growth investor or a value yeah, investor? Totally it's, totally it, it's about looking at your structural biases within your exposure and saying, you know, do I only have growth exposure or am I only invested in the US and is, is does that mean I'm very rate sensitive? Or those sorts of kind of risk assessments are, what's, are what are important rather than just trying to predict where, yeah. can the, where can the bombs go off? Because yeah. at least yeah. if you know where they can go off, then you can do something to address and it, it. And if you don't know because you haven't got the tools to work it out in terms of portfolio style, then just go and have a look at your performance in 2020 and 2021 and then can, and then have a look at it in 2022. Chances are mm. if your 2020 and 2021 were spectacular and 2022 was bad, you probably got more growth than a bit less value. And if it's the other way around, then you probably got more in value and mm. less in growth. It's, it's, I think it's, it's really, really tough for DIY investors because we are very fortunate here to have a big, well-resourced research team that you know, understand where the, you know, what the exposure is within you know, the various investments that we hold. Well, the if classic you, one that you get from, I've had from friends and people I know and stuff is, uh, I heard that inflation was going to be a risk, so I bought some inflation-linked bonds and, you know, down yeah. By, down, <laughs> down, down by a third last year. Yeah, and even that one's a kind of a tough one to try and break down the yeah. mathematical yeah. Ex- explanation for, yeah. for the duration of risk that they've got. This is a breaking thing. <laughs> real yields. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's really, really difficult things as a DIY investor because, you know, you get the punch in the face. I saw an advert for, it was on during halftime of the football, Templeton Emerging Market Trust. You know, you're getting these best buy lists and typically people like to buy what's working. And when you're reviewing a, a client's you know, DIY portfolio in, in 2020, 2021, it was all the hits of things that had mm-hmm. done well. And you know, very, very, very good strategies, great managers in and of their own right, but put them together, all together and everything's time. pointing in the yeah. same direction. Yeah. And if everything can go up at the same time, best believe everything can go down at the yeah. same time. And it's difficult to tell from best buy lists, things that have done the best, what's actually going on underneath the bonnet. Yeah. And part of being a professional, God help us all, investor, is being prepared to buy stuff that you actually think might go down. Or not participating in in the things that are doing so well is the (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing that was off that particularly held us back in the last um cycle was not getting on the bandwagon to the same extent that that you know some people were and you know for it can go on for many many years where you feel like fomo is quite powerful huge yeah yeah what's what's behavioral finance is just the is the biggest part of it the the general thinking we've got a great chart behavioral finance in a second but the the general thinking is that loss aversion is more powerful than sort of fear of missing out. I'm mm. not so sure. Not I so think sure it either. depends on your age. Yep. Yeah, and, and and people are kind of myopic and don't remember as far no. back as the risks that, you know, even probably for the, to the financial crisis is, is the one that everyone thinks about. And, and even if you can remember further back, I mean, how many people are still in the industry from, say, the 80s? some you know old sages in across the the businesses but you know to actually still be around we're you know in our 30s and in 40s and you know so you, you there's not as much living memory of mm. actually go being on managing money in these kind of once in a generation events you know if you go through uh, i don't know like the kind of UK leaving the exchange rate mechanism or something like that. Yeah. Something that is a huge shock and a big macro kind of shock to, to what's going on in markets. 
I mean, how many people are still investing that were managing money at that point? Starts to start to lose people that you can still talk to about it. Yeah. Whereas if you're saying in the last few years should I have been buying growth, people will lean into the more recent um, patterns. Definitely. Mm. Um, you know, when you're talking about human nature, behavioural, and human beings are, are quite often. This is a, a starting depressing, point. Very depressing, Charles. I like that annotation. Avoid selling at the bottom. Yeah, That's good no, advice, isn't it? I might stick this on my uh, <laughs> stick this up in front of my computer. So basically, blue line is net inflows. So how much money is going into the uh, stock market, simply speaking, versus how much money is coming out. And as we can see, money tends to come out around market bottoms. Um, yeah. It's kind yeah, of it's kind of cause and effect, isn't it? And and, and peaks at the peaks. So two thousand is a peak. Oh six oh seven is a peak there. It's uh, 2021. Just yeah, if only these people had Johnny Raymond on the oh, end of a phone to talk them out of making know. the big mistake. But we can talk all we want to the cows come home about your relative outperformance, stock positioning, alpha generation. If you make a big financial mistake, that's going to obliterate your outcome. Even if you have an imperfect investment strategy, if you avoid making that big mistake, you're going to get a great outcome. 100%. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the biggest part of the job, in my view, is making sure that people are, are on the right path with it with regards to how much volatility they're exposed to, because you only start selling when you're in panic mode, and you're only panicking if you're losing more than you were comfortable losing. So if you get people in a range of outcomes that they're happy with, you know, down up and down 5% or up and down 10%, whatever their range of kind of volatility that they're comfortable with, then you should be able to keep them within that range for 20, 30 years. And then they're kind of happy from A to B. But if you've got them breaking that range at times, that's when they're gonna panic. And that's where you see, you know, on aggregate in the marketplace, people selling because they were people that shouldn't have been buying in the previous peak. You know, they're, they're being exposed to asset risk and, and, and equity risk that they, they, they didn't want and they shouldn't have had. So if you can get that advice to keep you in, in a more comfortable range, then longer term, you should be all right. I think this is something about the current environment at the minute. Yes, we've had a bit of a, a bit of a rally. Whether that persists or not, I don't know. But it's probably worth having a plan in your mind for what you're going to do if we do go back to the lows. If it doesn't happen, great. You don't like a fire need it. Drill. It's like a fire drill, isn't it? In case of so emergency. You, you need to and, the, and the plan might be do nothing. Mm. But be accountable and have rules in place at a time where the world doesn't feel that scary that when things get a bit more emotional, you can you can fall back mm. on that. Great. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the, you know, sort of look at a chart like this and sort of think this is a bit our raison d'etre, as you said. Mm. This is what we're here for. Sure, we can talk about the relative merits against of Glaxo against Astra and BP versus Shell. Do that all day long, but ultimately, this is you know, I think the most value that we provide to a lot of clients, 100%. particularly clients who've never been through it before. Absolutely, um, that's a great place to leave it. I think. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Did you enjoy that? No problem. Yeah, absolute delight. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've brought my, I brought myself down. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm filmed. Feel much better about the world. Um, what are you? What are you up to next couple of weeks? Doing anything exciting? Yeah, starting the uh, the advisor roadshow actually. So I'll be out to spout more oh, positivity good. around Spread. the country. Not exactly the good word, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe the misery word. Tune in, see you there on the road. Uh, yeah, I think we're starting off in, in Liverpool. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Making a stop by Coventry now. 
I'll be in Birmingham. Yeah, oh, so yeah. near enough. Near enough. Yeah. Brilliant. How about you, John? Clark meetings back on the back on the wagon. Uh, where was I last week? Essex last week. Suffolk this week. Uh, Oxfordshire next week. So it's a good time of year for it. Getting the ISIS done as well. Make sure you get your mm. ISIS done early on. Get your ISIS done. Control the controllables. Um, <laughs> Jens, that was brilliant. Thanks very much. That was great laugh. Um, thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, come back in a couple of weeks and if you have any questions or want us to discuss anything in particular, drop me a note at david.henry at quilterchevia.com. All the best. Thank you.